Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Rebecca Jennings. I'm a senior culture correspondent at Vox.com, sitting in today for Sean Illing. This is an agree-to-disagree zone. You've this is Talia Lickstein. Don't try to fight with me. Fight with yourself. Don't give me context or excuses. I do not change my mind. And this is one of her TikToks from last August, in which she's announcing pretty clearly that she's a hater. Here are some things that I don't like. People who, instead of, like, clapping with their hands, they clap by, like, hitting a part of their body. They'll, like, hit their leg. People who text me without getting to the point text, hey, and just wait for me to, what, like, you, you need to check that I'm here? She might come across as a little annoyed here, but I talked to Talia for a piece I wrote recently. She's not trying to be mean. And it's not just that she's trying to be funny. She's doing important work. When a bad thing happens to you and people say, oh my god, I can't even imagine. That's literally, like, the only thing that you can do. Talia, like all of us who spend too much time online, is surrounded by this relentless, uncritical, boring positivity that is sapping all the nuance and all the complexity out of online discourse. If you want to start to feel happy, it starts with you wanting to feel happy. If you like this video, give it a thumbs up. I love you guys. Give this video a big thumbs up if you enjoyed it. Be positive, spread kindness, pay it forward. If you are a positive person, it's almost your duty to share that shit. Influencers love to talk about how they're spreading positivity. They often see any shred of criticism directed their way as hate. Maybe they think, oh, this person must just be critiquing me because they're secretly jealous of my popularity and success. But what's troubling is, I'm seeing symptoms of influencer brain in all sorts of people, not just influencers. Is there no space for just a little bit of targeted negativity anymore? Are we headed towards a world where no one can criticize anyone or anything without being dismissed as toxic? Keep in mind here, I'm not talking about actual hate, like the kind directed at entire groups of people. I'm also not talking about the thing that we call cancel culture, nor am I complaining about being canceled. I'm just trying to say, might there be some value in being a hater? 
I'm Rebecca Jennings, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Justin Charity. He's a senior staff writer and culture critic at The Ringer, and he identifies as a lifelong hater. Throughout his career writing and podcasting about movies, video games, and especially music, he's written criticism that seems to say, I get that you all love this thing, like HBO's Station Eleven or a Kendrick Lamar album, but don't you see that it could have been so much better? As a critic, Justin's experienced the backlash of writing a review that's less than 100% positive and accidentally mobilizing a fan base to all turn against him. We talk a little about that experience in this conversation, and we talk about what happened in online culture over the past decade or so that's made it feel so fringe and risky to be negative. And I had to start by asking him about this term I've been throwing around. How would you define a hater? I think somebody who maybe moves through life and culture with a kind of reflexive, I I don't want to say a reflexive dislike. I don't think that's what hating is ideally about, but maybe a a reflexive skepticism, right? Mm -hmm. Or even a will to roast, to rib. Yeah, somebody like that. And I feel like the the value of the hater or the position of the hater in wider society has really evolved over time. Like, I think we can trace the rise of, like, poptimism in, you know, the 2010s as sort of this backlash to, like, hipsterdom and the poptimism of the 2000s as a backlash to, like, the 90s anti-sellout culture. Where do you think we are right now? Well, as all things culture, right? We're in the backlash to the backlash to the backlash to the backlash. Exactly. <laughs> but no, I do think we are currently in a, you know, how like Star Wars movies sometimes form this arc and people generally recognize that the second movie, the middle movie is the dark one. I think we're in this sort of backlash to poptimism, finally getting a kind of full swing to it. Yeah. I think sort of bullishness about pop music is still the dominant mode certainly for like mainstream media right but i do think that there's a lot of traction for a kind of anti-poptimist sentiment at the moment for sure and hating i feel like used to be a signal that you were cool that you were better than everybody because you hated a popular thing do you think that's kind of still the case or like what happened there well, I don't know. Do I I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. It used to be a signal that you were cool for not liking a popular thing. I don't know. I think maybe what I'd say is that people used to look at haters in a more ambivalent or neutral way. Like one thing I think about a lot is sort of on the old Chappelle show, they they had the the bit about the player haters ball, right? And it's sort of <laughs> making fun of these guys who all dress like they're all sort of 70s black exploitation characters and they make a sport, right, of insulting each other. It's just like who can craft the best insult, who can be the most consistently negative about everything. The player haters ball gives us an opportunity to hate on a diverse array of mock-ass mocks. The most diabolical haters this side of the Mississippi. 
the difference between then when you could air a sketch like that and there's this sense of like, oh, haters, you know, we all have haters in our lives. Haters are fine. I think now the hater is somebody that is in sort of like the nadir of their regard, right? They're sort of seen as like the antagonist of anybody who likes Game of Thrones and Star Wars and Disney. And it's just these haters don't want you to have anything, right? Yeah. That's the shift, I guess. So something that I've noticed a lot, and I don't know if you see this in your writing about music and entertainment, but I cover a lot of influencers. And the main thing that I notice about talking to influencers or people that are, you know, not quite famous, but getting there or micro-famous or niche-famous, whatever, they tend to view the world in very, like, black and white. There's haters, and then there's fans or followers or supporters, whatever. You know, there's no room for, like, nuanced criticism at all because when you hear people shouting at you and shouting their opinions at you all the time, or that's at least what it feels like, the ones that stick out are, you know, the really positive ones, like, oh my god, I love you, I'm obsessed with you, and the really negative ones, like, oh my god, kill yourself, which, uh, you know, most people don't feel that strongly about anything or anyone. Yeah. But I think in turn, it gives people this kind of brain where— there are your enemies, and then there are your supporters, and those are the only two kinds of people in the world. And I've seen that kind of trickle down to regular people, too, as we all kind of, like, are infected with influencer brain. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've noticed, interviewing famous people or artists or things like that. What's well, funny, when I got into music writing, I can think of rappers that I've interviewed, but I think rap is different because I think so much of hip-hop culture is kind of inherently antagonistic, where it's almost inherently like what I was describing about the player haters ball, right? Kind of the dynamic of just living and being a major player in hip hop culture is there are people trying to give you a hard time. And it almost actually is a sport dealing with haters in hip hop. That's kind of the joy <laughs> of a lot of rap records going back to the 80s, right? Is this sense of you being the underdog, even once you've become the most popular rapper in the genre or maybe even on earth, right? That's just what hip-hop is. The thing you're describing is this fans versus haters dynamic in a more atomic sense. I first encountered on YouTube, right? Like YouTubers were the first people I remember just constantly kind of talking in this gossip level haters versus fans way or like the phenomenon you're identifying, right? A video could have a thousand comments on it, but for whatever reason, one negative comment got under the YouTuber's skin and then they made a follow-up video in response to that. Right. It's not like human nature has changed or anything. We understand why the YouTuber reacts to that negative comment that way. Mm -hmm. But there is something about the fact, and we're, we're writers and we live on the internet in a sense, right? So it's a sense of being on the internet, you kind of have to manage a personal brand in a way, like your, your, your own PR department. Yeah. And that's why you end up internalizing stuff like that so much more than you might have if you were, I don't know, a Vanity Fair journalist in 1993. The dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like as journalists and critics and writers, like it's kind of our job to do that. But also, you know, it is a public facing role where you are online, you are accessible for people. When someone has a problem with what you write, you will know about it if they have a big enough problem. But I think as, you know, more people develop followings or even like mini followings, I'm shocked at how little fame or notoriety a person can have and start to adopt this way of thinking. Yeah. And again, like, I truly think it's human nature. Of course it is. It's all about self-preservation. And it's easier to deal with criticism when you just can, like, write off the whole group of people that have anything negative to say as, like, a hater. But at the same time, 
bringing up YouTubers is such a good point because the key phrase there is spreading positivity and spreading negativity. (laughs) It is like my least favorite thing in the entire world. (laughs) Say Jake Paul or something. He's like, I'm just trying to spread positivity, man. Why is everyone coming after me? It's like, because you scammed all your 12-year-old followers into like buying this fake crypto coin and like probably stole their email addresses for something nefarious. But I'm glad that we're seeing a backlash to that because I think that was such a big part of the 2010s culture where it's like, if I'm a woman, that means I'm a girl boss and anything a woman does that makes it inherently empowering or anytime a YouTuber does something shitty, it's like, but I'm just trying to spread positivity. (laughs) Well, I don't... I don't know. I mean, I think in the beginning, that kind of spread positivity defense mechanism is understandable, right? Once you realize that you're living in a version of the internet where, one, you're just sort of there constantly. Yeah, you have a schedule for releasing videos or uploading TikToks or whatever, but you're just always there. So you got to find a way to warp reality in such a way that (laughs) you have a kind of rationalization of everything that you're doing and you don't have to sort of internalize negative feedback because you just feel like you're being poisoned after a point if you're just making YouTube all day. But I really don't think that you can talk YouTubers or others out of this posture yet. I I don't know how close we are to that, right? I think that's still the default tone, the default survival mechanism of someone who has to live on the internet with a huge following where they have to filter out a lot of negative feedback. I remember Taylor Swift's fans had a tantrum because Pitchfork rated her album like a 7.0, which is like a pretty decent (laughs) score. Or Mr. Beast getting criticism for, this is a very recent example, Um, he made a video where it was like, I just cured a thousand people of blindness. In this video, we're curing a thousand people's blindness. It's gonna be crazy. Most of us see the world like this. But here's the thing, 200 million people see the world like this. And people sort of accused him for using disabled people for profit and for, like, charity porn. And of course, you know, the Mr. Beast stands and Mr. Beast himself were very frustrated by that and were kind of screaming on the internet about how he can't do anything right, people just want to hate, he's just trying to spread positivity. Uh, But we've seen, like, these celebrities having these kind of, like, tantrums online about not getting exactly the kind of reaction that they were intending to or feeling really overly criticized. I feel like it's never been a worse time to be a critic because we're just so easy to attack for being haters. (laughs) I think I think about a lot the thing you're saying with, um, you know, what happens when your website gives Taylor Swift album a seven, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And that that's not enough for people. You know, some people think that in review websites of all kinds, of all media in the past 20 years, right, it's almost like a grade inflation has happened as a result of this fan pressure, because it's sort of whether you're talking about a video game or whether you're talking about a Taylor Swift album, anything lower than a seven scans as a pan to people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're right. I think in that sense, you're right. There's never been a worse time to be a critic. It's one thing when you do genuinely pan an album and you're like, yeah, I wrote that knowing that this artist has fans and they're going to be mad and they're going to disagree with things that I said. But I think the definitive dynamic of our time is you can write something positive, but just insufficiently positive, and people will will snap on you. <laughs> That's the dynamic. That's the modern dynamic. Exactly. Or you care so much about Pitchfork that, like, that feels like a big enough slight to Taylor Swift, who has, you know, 
20 times the amount of influence that Pitchfork does. Her and, you know, Nicki Minaj fans are often mm-hmm. cited. In- <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> Have you really? Have you been canceled by Nicki Minaj fans as barbs? No, I've been. Ca- I mean, I'm uncancelable, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> like it's sort of just as somebody whose like main music criticism background is rap. There was definitely a specific period of a climate of fear around <laughs> Nicki. It's also like I haven't been on Twitter for years, and so it's sort of like without a Twitter account, you're safe. Here, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> but like back then, right? If you, you know what I mean? If they could touch you, they could touch you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. It's almost like there's this balance, right? There's a there's in any any year, any decade, there's a certain amount of fan energy in a culture and a certain amount of hater energy in a culture, and the <laughs> the balance of these things shifts. And right now, we're just sort of, you know, I I think the past ten years have been this high point of the saturation of fan energy and low point of the saturation of hater energy. And it's almost like the fan contingents in culture know that they <laughs> yes. have this upper hand. And they're really reveling in it. (laughs) And I think so much of this boils down to this very, very, very popular internet meme that is, side note, has been totally divorced from its original context. Mm -hmm. But it's a webcomic from a few years ago where someone walks into a room with a bunch of people watching like a football game or something. And the person is kind of like making little jabs about like how stupid football is. And the last frame of the comic is just some guy, like, shutting his mouth, and he's just like, shh, let people enjoy things. And that's obviously the part that has gone mega, mega, mega viral, where, to use a really hacky example, like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, you can tweet something, like, barely critical of it, and someone can reply with that image of saying, shh, let people enjoy things. Like, how dare you? Like, as if that's, like, you know, this unforgivable crime, having the same energy of walking into a room of football fans and being like, you guys like this? (laughs) You know, those are two completely different things. Yeah, and people, I think, often treat those responses as mutually exclusive, right? Like, the the thing that's frustrating about the person who's mad about either somebody is like, I liked Endgame, but I didn't like the specific thing, or frankly, even the person who's like, I didn't like Endgame and I don't like the MCU, is that the fan in this scenario internalizes this idea that they're being talked over or that they're being invalidated or obliterated in some way when that moment happens. And I think that's the real problem that's emerged in the current fan-hater dynamic. People really struggle with this idea that, hey, someone saying somewhere on the internet that they don't like something literally doesn't have to have any impact on you whatsoever if you don't want it to. So what's the issue, right? Right. And I I talk about this all the time, or I think about it all the time, where, like, there is such a difference between the kind of conversations we have or even can have in person, in social or professional settings, and on the internet. So it's like, of course you wouldn't walk into a room full of super, super MCU nerds and say, actually, I didn't really like whatever, because you're limited by, like, time and space and, like, social norms and things like that, whereas on the internet, it's like, you can go wherever you want. You can find places where people are shit-talking the MCU. You can find places where people are obsessed with it. But, like, what someone says on your corner of the internet has nothing to do with what's happening on the other corner. And the worst part of social media is, is certain platforms get too big, and then all those rooms are, like, shoved into the same one. And so when you see conversations happening on one side, you take that as, like, someone invading your space, where, like, it's everyone's space, you know? It's it's not just yours. Right. We don't have the limits of physical space to, like, 
keep us all in separate areas. It makes people feel attacked when people are just having private conversations or like semi-private. But can can I make a concession or or ask what you think about a sort of counterpoint I'll offer here, which is that, mm-hmm. so if we're talking about the famous comic with the panel, let people enjoy things, one thing I sometimes think, as somebody who's been a hater my whole life, <laughs> is that, okay, those fans, right, those fans who overhear somebody being negative about something, somebody having a critical opinion about something and internalizing that, right? They have to be reacting to something. Something makes me think that at some other point, those people who maybe are really invested in Batman comics or Star Wars or something like that, maybe earlier in their lives or at a different point in the balance between fan culture and hater culture, they felt like there was actually somebody holding the finger over their mouth, or they felt that their subculture was being held down in some way. It feels like maybe there's a bit of that at play, where maybe that if haters are being honest with themselves, there was a point in the history of these fan-hater relations where haters did have more of an upper hand against fans, yeah, and fans didn't like how haters treated them. Is there something to that idea? Oh, yeah, totally. I think people carry resentments forever, and it can be really difficult to separate, you know, your own past experiences with being torn down by someone who hates what you have to say and and not repeating that process over and over again with the same kind of dynamic. Like, I totally understand why people feel so personally attacked when something that they love is criticized. But some people like the critic uh, Christian Lorenzen see the power that fans have over traditional outlets of criticism as kind of a disaster. Like if the New York Review of Books starts worrying about backlash to their reviews, then is the act of reviewing itself compromised? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I do think that critics have a like, again, this is sort of a manifestation of the problem of how are critics supposed to do their job when there is this this kind of, it feels like it's a little more than soft pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the easy response is to say, well, the New York Review of Books or the New York Times or New York Mag or wherever, or The Ringer shouldn't worry about that or shouldn't care about it or should should try to keep a level head and keep things in perspective whenever Nikki stands get riled up <laughs> about a 6.7 review of a Nicki Minaj <laughs> album, right? And ideally, that would be what happens. But even setting aside how maybe the executive editor of your website responds to that and sort of counsels you as a writer at that website when it's happening, the truth is, if you're a writer, that's just not an enjoyable experience to go through either, Right. So even if the publication will have your back, it still feels bad to write something thoughtful but critical about someone or something on the Internet and to people to just kind of harass you about it for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I've seen that play out in the past decade with people where it's like people will write some infamous pan of something. And it's just that there is clearly a kind of fan who, like Javert and <laughs> Miserable, will like hunt this critic to the ends of the earth for the rest of their life. Yeah. It's the social media part, right? It's the part where that critic feels like, okay, well, I have to be a brand. I have to attend to a brand. I have to be on the internet. I can't just not have a Twitter account, not have X, Y, and Z ways that people can sort of get in my DMs and my mentions. You kind of want to say, well, this is part of the territory of being a writer. And to an extent, it is. But it's also just unpleasant when it reaches a certain level, right? It just sucks. Right. I think there's a sense on on our end of the industry that, like, If you're going to write a pan, 
it better be worth it. Yeah. You better be punching up versus punching down, which is, you know, a, a common concept in journalism where, you know, if you want to be really critical of something, think about the power that you as a journalist have over the target. Yeah. And I, I think anyone can agree that Taylor Swift has more power than me or Vox as a whole, probably. And so, you know, like any punching up I'm doing is like a tiny little poke in the universe of feelings. But I think the internet tends to flatten all that. So when people see like a journalist with a blue check writing something negative, they think that that's like some really powerful person using their enormous power when like it's just a person that works at a website that probably is making no money. Yeah. You know, what's funny too about this is that I, I may be articulating some of this as, oh, this is a fact of the internet and how the internet is transformed. But the truth is, I remember the internet of, let's say, the late 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah. That's an internet where it's sort of Twitter's been around for a bit, Facebook's been around for a bit, social media has been around for a bit. And yet it still felt like in that window, you could still do writing where you're disagreeing. You're maybe even just writing the kind of blog post where it's like you're responding directly to another blogger, right? Something like that, right? You're writing a pan, you're writing all kinds of critical writing. You're even sometimes being super explicitly just spicy, right? People used to be spicy in the blog era. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. And yet it was still sort of understood that you could have an argument with whoever on the internet either an artist that you're reviewing an album of, maybe another writer. And at the end of the day, the point is that, well, these are writers. They're doing the things writers do. They're hashing out ideas. They're having disagreements about stuff. And they're adults, though, so they should be able to walk it off. And we can all understand that this is just, this is intellectual life. This is intellectual work. Yes. And I think the thing that's changed, right, the thing that makes it feel like bad for criticism is the part where people people don't just walk off disagreement now, right? People do the thing where they will camp your mentions for the rest of your life if you cross the wrong line. <laughs> <laughs> they will engage you in screenshot warfare till the ends of the earth. <laughs> this you? <laughs> yeah, this you. They will this you. Like four years after the fact of something, they're going to this you you, you know, on Twitter. <laughs> there has been a fundamental breakdown in people's ability to process disagreement and just accept that it's natural to disagree. If anything, like, if you're the kind of person who's sitting on Twitter all day in the first place and reading articles, it's because you like being intellectually stimulated and you take as a fact that you're going to encounter a lot of headlines and even whole articles, if you actually read them, that you're going to disagree with. But that's part of what you enjoy. Yeah. That's lost the time. And now you have people who are mad and they don't even know why. And they forgot that the whole point of reading other people's thoughts and ideas is to encounter other people's thoughts and ideas. And so instead they get mad when they encounter content that is not just sort of reflecting their own mindset and biases and priorities back at them. And it's just incredibly strange if you remember what the internet and internet writing was like before 2015. Totally. I see this play out everywhere, whether you're talking about like urban planning or Oscar films. And it, it feels very like not to be like all cancel culture or whatever, but like when people talk about intellectual ideas or concepts or art, especially people have started to kind of use the language of social justice to bolster their own opinions making, you know, your consumption of art or your own, like, personal philosophies as though that's, like, a moral judgment on your character. And I find that very fascinating and also very harmful to social justice causes. I think on the one hand, it's that, right? It's the way that people kind of 
find social justice angles into stories that are not realistically like at the level of a genuine political emergency. You know what I think about the speaking of 2010s blogging, right? Like I think about the boom of the first person essay. Yeah. Oh my God. One thing that kind of bugged me, and again, remember I'm a lifelong hater, so everything bugs me. But <laughs> one thing that always bugged me about it is about personal essays and how they would sort of be written not just to be a kind of memoir style writing, but to be a kind of way into maybe an intellectual debate is that like, there are definitely strengths to coming at things from a first person perspective. But one thing that the first person essay did in the 2010s is it made it hard to disagree with people about stuff, right? Because it's one thing if somebody writes some detached, maybe voicey, but still third person essay, and you disagree with ideas in it, and you're just like, well, I disagree with X, Y, and Z. But once you revert to first person, you're sort of in this weird territory of like, am I going to contradict this person's lived experience? Like, are they, right, right. if I contradict or dispute something in this essay, they're going to internalize that, right? That sort of trend line in the 2010s is sort of hand in hand with what you're saying about how the moment you decide that disagreeing about which film won Best Oscar in 2019 isn't just a question of taste, but it's also about the future of race relations in the United States, you've escalated this potential disagreement up to 11. And it's sort of like, one, by doing that, right, you've made it harder for people to even want to do it, right? Exactly. And the people who do want to throw down about it are going to be people who are already at 11, right? And are going to want to... such know? a good way of putting it. <laughs> like, that ends up being the problem with it, is that you really screen out a lot of more sort of, I think, nuanced conversation with a lot of how these dynamics have taken shape over the past 10 years or so. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Justin Charity after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. 
From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I actually had this really interesting conversation in an article that I wrote recently. It was basically in defense of haters. She's Talia Lickstein. She's a TikToker. She's in like her early 20s living in New York. She's very much like NYC TikToker girly. But her kind of self-branding is like spread negativity with a heart emoji. And she's actually a really smart, really lovely, not like this mean, nasty person. But her whole thing is that we've lived on the internet where everyone just says that they're spreading positivity regardless of what they're doing. Everyone has to love everything. And her thing is she, you know, she just does videos about like what I hate. And a lot of it is, you know, like anti-feminist stuff like Andrew Tate. A lot of it is just like, I hate when, like, couples do this thing on Instagram. And (laughs) I think that stuff is so fun. And we need more room for just, like, mild social critique, which I, again, like, this is what artists do. (laughs) But she was saying how so much of the internet is kind of divided into in between, like, you know, haters and fans. She was like, I think there's some power in just being like, well, yeah, I'm a hater, but, like, I'm also, like, injecting nuance into this conversation that was never there before. And if you want to call me a hater, like, that's fine, too. I'll call myself that and wear it proudly. It's honestly refreshing. <laughs> yeah, I think they're learning. I think the kids are learning. But but part of it, too, right, it's sort of, okay, leaning into being a hater, right? Like, trying to be a part of the counter-reaction against positivity culture. It's like... I feel like what we're really ultimately talking about is at some point, some sizable contingent of the internet decided that almost all disagreement is catastrophic. (laughs) Almost all dissent is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And being a hater, kind of in the attitude of the person you just described, is not about saying the fan outlook on culture is wrong and the hater outlook is right. To me, it's more about a mindset of like, I'm a hater. It's fine. Like, this doesn't have to be a catastrophe. Like, it's also fine that you're a fan. And sometimes it can be interesting and fun when fans and haters come into interactions with each other and trade ideas and leave different impressions on third-party observers who maybe don't identify as fans or haters, but maybe learn from watching the interaction of a fan object and criticism of that object. Yes. What I was describing earlier about how even if you're a professional writer and you pan something and your editor has your back, but it sucks if you get brigaded, bandwagon, and oblivion by a stan army, right? Mm-hmm. That environment makes it hard to develop the thick skin necessary to just be like, well, whatever, I'm a hater. If that's such a bad word, then whatever, I just identify as it. It's harder to do, I feel like. Than ever before, it has to be that this is the hardest time to ever develop that thick skin because you're just so overexposed to the backlash to things. But 
you kind of just have to do it. Like, even if Twitter didn't exist, even if Facebook, TikTok didn't exist, like, you would want to be a careful writer who speaks with precision and clarity. Mm -hmm. But it's a genuinely awful feeling when you catch yourself saying, not, oh, I want to tweak how I'm saying this because it's maybe not true or it's not quite how I feel. And instead you realize that the voice in your head isn't even in your own voice. It's like the voice of a disembodied tweet yelling at you yes. or something, right? Oh, my God. It's, yes. It's humiliating to catch yourself sort of thinking that and sort of realizing that, oh, wow, my writing really is being in some way puppeteered by a backlash that doesn't even exist yet, right? You don't want that. No one wants that. I don't think, and writing can't live if it's going to be in an environment where writers are constantly thinking that, you know? I know. It's it's such <laughs> my editor and I talk about this a lot, how like we yeah, we live in fear whenever we put up a story. You know, there's we go through and think about everything that could be taken out of context or mm-hmm. something that could just be like blown out into something that it was never meant to be or didn't include someone's personal perspective. And it's like, no, it's it's written by me. It's my perspective. <laughs> and yeah. like if a writer could just like write everyone's experience at, at once, it would be the worst thing you've ever read. Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. like absolute garbage. So yeah, I think that's it's a really um great point how it makes worse writing and less interesting conversations because I think when people just see two extreme sides fighting about something, it makes them less likely to want to engage at all and like less interested in the whole thing. Yeah. And it's like the less like to engage part is so important to me because what that means is that people encounter a headline, right? Or they encounter an excerpt of something and they think they already know, right? They think they already know what you said in 2000 words because they read eight words and they've kind of pantomimed you into existence, right? As either a fan of something or a hater of something or a liberal or conservative or whatever. Like people just sort of carry these straw men in their pockets, right? And I think that's kind of the other unpleasant thing. It's also behind why if you see a score that's too low on a review, you just assume, right, as the Taylor stand, that, oh, this writer is disrespecting Taylor. They they, they hate Taylor. Why couldn't they get somebody who likes the artist? And then meanwhile, the reviewer is someone who loves Taylor Swift. Exactly. Or they love Lana Del Rey. They love Kendrick Lamar. And they're trying to articulate a hard thought or a series of hard thoughts in their review. But you've just dismissed it out of hand because it doesn't say 10-10, this is the greatest album since sliced bread. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, there's so much middle ground between... Being an archetypal hater and an archetypal fan, right? And I don't know how much of that is reversible. That's what I wonder. (laughs) I know. I don't know that there's a specific way you could change Twitter or TikTok that would disincentivize the bad things and incentivize the good things. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's like whenever there's tension or conflict on one corner of the internet, the rest of the internet seizes on it because we love stories about, like, niche conflict. Mm -hmm. People are just, like, thirsty for any kind of interesting interpersonal tension. And so these things get so much bigger than they should be. I write about this a lot when it comes to, like, canceling normal people. Mm -hmm. Some random person, you know, he ghosted a couple girls and now he's, you know, his life is kind of ruined because the entire internet was like, oh, this is interesting. Look at how shitty he was. This reminds me of like my ex-boyfriend. And so let's like destroy him. I feel like that's an artifact of the thing you said at the very top of the discussion, right? Which is this is what happens when you devolve the idea of celebrity all the way down to 
guy making short form videos <laughs> with no producer in his mom's basement. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so yeah. it, when, it's like everybody internalizes the idea that anybody with more than a thousand followers anywhere is interchangeable with Beyonce <laughs> or interchangeable with like George Bush in terms of their stature. Yeah. <laughs> That's the issue a little bit. Yeah, because like ultimately all those people are strangers on a screen and it's really hard to separate when you're you're one person, but all these other people, you know, seem to be so much more powerful than you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I do want to make one caveat now because I think you've clarified something. When these people do kind of brigading or kind of, you know, proactive mischaracterization of things they encounter on the internet, like, I don't claim those people, right? Like, those people are being haters. Yeah. It's tempting to conflate the idea of being a hater with being a person who's, like, angry about stuff. They're not really similar modes at all, right? Because, again, it's, like, almost a lot of the time, like, the people you will find the angriest on the internet are angry because they like something, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Neither being a fan nor being a hater requires you to be a nuisance (laughs) to other people. Right. I feel like haters are more in the like, all right, I'm going to opt out of this because I don't like it. You know, hating is just like, that's not for me. I hate it for me. It's fine for you, whatever. Or, no, and you might even rant about it, right? But it's still different. Sure, yeah. I've, I've been a hater in capacities where I've just been like, I cannot stop talking about how much I dislike this thing. But it's still different from being like, I don't like this thing versus I don't like this thing and now I'm going to harass the creator of it forever. Yes. <laughs> That's the difference. Do you think being a hater is in some way an act of love because of how much kind of time slash attention that you could possibly be throwing it? I absolutely do, especially going back to what I was saying in the beginning about how coming at it, for instance, from a hip-hop perspective, I think definitely a lot of the kind of encoded antagonism, right, that emergent artists, or really artists at every phase of their career, have to deal with from gatekeepers, from fans, right, that sense of steel sharpens steel in hip-hop culture, right? I don't think people would give rappers in that culture such a hard time if they didn't love hip-hop and if they didn't feel defensive of hip-hop on some level, right? Like, the people you will find who will get the angriest and aggiest and kind of the most haterific about hip-hop are people who love hip-hop and who you would never mistake for people who actually secretly don't like hip-hop or tuned out of it. Yeah. Right? So it's absolutely, I think, the case that, like, the primary motivation of a hater is, in fact, love and a defensiveness and a desire to see a thing be, at least in the hater's estimation, the best version of itself. Here's an example that is extremely close to your life, but a couple of years ago, my boyfriend wrote an article about the Bill Simmons subreddit mm-hmm. and how the entire thing is basically devoted to, like, hating on Bill Simmons, <laughs> even though, like, these people listen to him every day, yeah. like, for, like, minimum an hour. I have to hear Bill Simmons talk in my apartment all the time, um, and I'm like, you love them. Yeah, it's like the logic of hate reading, right? It's, yeah, totally, totally. Even as a hater, I think I struggled with hate reading for a long time, because to me, it's hate reading and, and it's associated hate listening, right, is tougher for me, because sometimes it involves taking a figure that you nominally categorically dislike entirely and still being like, 
oh yeah, I've listened to a hundred hours of this podcast that I don't like. And then that's when it becomes weird because you don't have the thing where it's like, well, you like hip hop in general and you happen to listen to this bad thing because it's one of many albums you listen. Instead, it's like, you only listen to this thing or read this byline because you hate this person. Yeah. But you're weirdly like one of their biggest fans. That's a kind of hating. That's a kind of hating and that's not my style of hating. That's too much. It kind of reminds me of like the way I engage with Bravo reality television where it's like, (laughs) I think Andy Cohen is, you know, a a pretty horrible person and he's done a lot of horrible things. But like, will I watch anything he produces? Yes. Will I watch all the reunions that he, you know, conducts? Yes. Because in some ways I do love him, but I think it's, yeah, it's, it's. It's complicated. And I think that's what we're all that's what we're all talking about, how things can be complicated and they don't have to be purely hate and purely fan. Let people complicate things. (laughs) We got to take one last short break, but stick around for more of my chat with Justin Charity. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So when you were saying, you know, the internet has decided all dissent is catastrophic, do you worry at all about the consequences of this on the internet or offline? Like, do you think that in the future people will have to sort of rediscover this kind of like meaningful, non-performative dissent? Or is this just like a blip that no one should be worrying about? at all. No, I definitely think people should worry because it I do think it's possible to unlearn or at least partially unlearn that hey, the culture of 
putting ideas into the world and refining them and exchanging them with other writers, especially in the age of internet where you can do it in sort of real time or near real time. Like, yeah, I mean, we are watching people forget that the point of that is not to play act a sort of real life war, <laughs> right? That the idea of is that you are actually interested in seeing how ideas play out together. I don't know. I think there is a real danger of that muscle sort of atrophying, right? Because people just don't use it for too long. And I definitely think that insofar as we're talking about sine waves or ebbs and flows in culture, I at least have hope that people will sort of come around to the idea that the turned up to 11 style of online discourse is like played out a little bit. <laughs> it's not really serving anyone well. And it mostly just makes people feel anxious and bad if they spend a lot of time on the internet. Like mm -hmm. I definitely expect people are learning, will learn that lesson. But because I can't even imagine sort of what platforms will emerge and what they'll look like that sort of reimpose or reconstitute the alternative culture of disagreement as something that we can all just live with and, in fact, accept as the whole fact and point of interacting with strangers on the internet. Like, I do worry about that because I just don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the future of that looks like. At a certain point, like, things just become kind of background noise. You know, it's like, it used to be that, like, getting a death threat on Twitter was like, oh my God, that is crazy. And now it's like, Okay. <laughs> you it's know what I mean? True, right? Like, yeah, it's so true. That's so true. But like I feel like it'll kind of go that way where it's like, you know, you're going to have the people at 11 over here and they're just going to do their thing and you can kind of go on ignoring them. And I really hope that that's where we're going because we're at the point where like, yeah, you can kind of ignore a death threat on Twitter. It's it's horrible and it sucks, but that's such a small percentage of the human condition and like they're just irrelevant, you know? Like, I think that we could get to a place where super-duper extreme or, you know, bizarre takes or pronouncements on social media can just kind of be mass-ignored. They don't have to blow up into their own little whole thing where we have to, like, make someone the main character on Twitter because they tweeted something stupid. They can just be ignored. I hope that's what happens. Yeah. I have that dream. I share that dream with you. <laughs> I mean, so one question, we talked a lot about, you know, influencer brain or YouTuber brain, where, you know, you as a creator or an influencer or even just like a person online are sort of subject to the whims of what the most amount of people that follow you want to see. Do you ever find yourself having that? Um, or do you think the publications you work for feel that way? What's your experience with that? No, and so like I'm at The Ringer and I feel like I at The Ringer have carved out this space, right? Both on the, the Ringer website and also on my podcast, Sound Only, which I do with Micah Peters. I touch a lot of different things. I touch hip hop or like anime or video games. And it, it sort of, it, it makes sense. My byline makes sense to me if to no one else, right? But when I left Twitter, Remember the first wave of fake pieces people would write of like, I quit Twitter for a month and this is what I <laughs> yes, found, yes, right? yes, yes. And I always felt like the premise of pieces like that were always misguided. They always sort of assume that like, oh, Twitter sucks because you're exposed to all this stuff and it's this overload of information and you get mad at other people. And it's like, I think I had this realization at the time of like, oh, that's the trick. Everybody thinks that the problem with social media is other people. The problem with social media is you. Because the issue is, like, Twitter is actually a perfectly fine website. If it's a website that you can go see a feed, 
you know, see what somebody's saying about something. The thing that makes Twitter bad is your own timeline, right? It's the, <laughs> it's the fact that you have the power to post individually, mm. right? Like, no one's problem on Twitter is other people. Everyone's problem is themselves and their capacity to post and to create the thing that becomes their timeline, right? And so to me, I didn't have any high-minded reason. I just realized that the problem isn't other people being mad that you didn't like a Drake album, right? The problem is that you've internalized that so deeply in yourself that that matters. Mm. I think once I left Twitter and then I left all, I, I, I deleted Facebook. I deleted like all my social media at the time. And ever since I did that, I felt, I haven't felt perfectly. I still think that there's a lot of sort of stuff about the current sort of web writing that still makes for a bad culture overall. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I think at least deleting my own capacity to post and instead having to think in terms of, look, whatever thoughts, feelings, anxieties I have, I got to work them out in my byline itself. Or, I mean, offline, right? I just talk to my wife about stuff. Yeah. But it's sort of, if it's germane to the internet, it's germane to the conversation about an artist, I got to put it in the piece. It's like, oh, yeah, that's why Twitter's bad. It's because, like, you end up sort of spilling yourself all over this platform that doesn't pay you. Twitter is like a glorified internship. It's a glorified unpaid internship, right? Like, so many <laughs> so many people who've gotten into journalism in the past decade, like, they've had to basically spill themselves, not just in the capacity of what it is that they cover, but they've just had to kind of sell their entire personal life to a website that does not compensate them in any way. Right. Doesn't guarantee anything about their career. And I think that's one small step you can make to kind of like reduce. But you can't tell that to a YouTuber, right? Because YouTubers is like, no, exactly. they're not like someone who's like, well, I have a byline and then Twitter is secondary. It's like, this is my entire life. I don't know what to tell the person who their primary thing has the comment section under it. Right. And they can't look away. I don't know what to tell that person. Good luck, YouTubers. <laughs> Have fun. Figure it out. Yeah. Okay, Justin, this was very fun. And I loved this conversation. I am not a hater of this conversation at all. I loved it, too. This is great. Thank you so much for, for being here. Thanks for having me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I had so much fun talking with Justin about hating and being a hater and just getting to claim that identity because it's not one that people talk about with pride anymore. And I think that's a problem. But let us know what you think drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. I'm Rebecca Jennings, and I write about internet culture for vox.com. Feel free to go check me out there, and Sean Illing will be back on Thursday. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.